The following sermon is from the Westminster Pulpit, extending the worship ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. We are a local congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format. Uh, There are perhaps few emotions as painful in life as experiencing the betrayal of a spouse. And there are few acts of grace as redemptive as one receiving back an unfaithful husband or wife. Uh, In our extended family, my wife and I have have witnessed uh, a man pursuing and receiving back a wife who had gone astray. Few callings in life are more difficult. Tonight we take a step further as we look into the life and the ministry of the prophet Hosea. He was a man with a difficult calling, called to marry an unfaithful woman and to pursue her and to do good to her. And even as we learn tonight, buy her back as she falls into the pit of slavery. As we learned from Pastor Light this past week, the Lord intended for the life and the sorrows and the redemption of Hosea's ministry to be a living parable for God's people. It illustrates Israel's harlotry of idolatry as well as God's unfailing steadfast love for his people. In our text tonight, we we observe how Hosea's grief parallels and represents the heartbrokenness of the Lord, who is a lover scorned, and yet possesses a love so strong that grace and mercy triumph over judgment. So as I read it, let us hear the heart of God calling out to his bride, the church today. Hosea chapter 2, beginning in verse 2. Rebuke your mother, rebuke her, for she is not my wife, and I am not her husband. Let her remove the adulterous look from her face, the unfaithfulness from between her breasts. Otherwise, I will strip her naked and make her as bare as on the day she was born. I will make her like a desert, turn her into a parched land, and slay her with thirst. I will not show my love to her children because they are children of adultery." Their mother has been unfaithful and, has, and was conceived, has conceived them in disgrace. She said, I will go after my lovers, who give me my food and my water, my wool and my linen, my oil and my drink. Therefore, I will block her path with thorn bushes. I will wall her in so that she cannot find her way. She will chase after her lovers but not catch them. She will look for them but not find them. Then she will say, I will go back to my husband as at first. For then I was better off than now. She has not acknowledged that I was the one who gave her the grain, the new wine and oil, who lavished on her the silver and gold which they used for Baal. Therefore I will take away my grain when it ripens, and my new wine when it is ready. I will take back my wool and my linen intended to cover her nakedness. 
So now I will expose her lewdness before the eyes of her lovers. No one will take her out of my hands. I will stop all her celebrations, her yearly festivals, her new moons, her Sabbath days, all her appointed feasts. I will ruin her vines and her fig trees, which she said were her pay from her lovers. I will make them a thicket. And wild animals will devour them. I will punish her for the day she burnt incense to the bales. She decked herself with rings and jewelry and went after her lovers. But me, she forgot, declares the Lord. Therefore, I am now going to allure her. I will lead her into the desert and speak tenderly to her. There I will give her back her vineyards. It will make the valley of Achor a door of hope. There she will sing as in the days of her youth, as in the days she came up out of Egypt. In that day, declares the Lord, you will call me my husband, and you will no longer call me my master. I will remove the names of the Baals from her lips. No longer will their names be invoked. In that day, I will make a covenant for them with the beast of the field and the birds of the air and the creatures that move along the ground, bow and sword and battle, I will abolish from the land so that they may lie down in safety. I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you in righteousness and justice and love and compassion. I will betroth you in faithfulness and you will acknowledge the Lord. In that day, I will respond, declares the Lord. I will respond to the skies and they will respond to the earth. And the earth will respond to the grain and the new wine and oil. And they will respond to Jezreel. I will plant her for myself in the land. I will show my love to the one I called not my loved one. I will say to those, who, those called not my people, you are my people. And they will say, you are my God. The Lord said to me, go, show your love to your wife again. Though she is loved by another and is an adulteress. Love her as the Lord loves the Israelites. Though they turn to other gods and love the sacred raisin cakes. So I bought her for 15 shekels of silver and about a homer and a lethic of barley. Then I told her, you are to live with me many days. You must not be a prostitute or be intimate with any man, and I will live with you. For the Israelites will live many days without king or prince, without sacrifice or sacred stones, without effort or idol. Afterward, the Israelites will return and seek the Lord their God, and David, their king, they will come trembling to the Lord and to his blessings in the last days. This is the word of our God. Let us pray. O oh, great God, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be pleasing and acceptable to you, O oh Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. This year, my daughter is in the third grade, and in our homeschool curriculum that we use, we have the privilege of studying ancient Greece. And just this past week, we, we studied the, the ancient myth of the Trojan War. And one of my favorite books in this curriculum is an adaptation of Homer's Iliad called The Black Ships Before Troy. A wonderful adaptation for children, beautifully illustrated. And as you might recall from high school or whenever you may have, have been forced to read the Iliad epic, you'll recall that in the story, the chief goddesses, Hera 
Athena and Aphrodite get into a quarrel over who is most beautiful. Well, to settle their dispute, they select a shepherd boy named Paris, who turns out to be the long-lost prince of Troy, to judge between them. Allured by the promise that he will be given the most beautiful woman in the world as a wife, Paris selects Aphrodite. Well, in fulfillment of her promise, Aphrodite, the goddess, enables Paris to steal away the heart of Helen, who is the wife of, the king, of king Menelaus, the king of Sparta, a woman renowned for her great beauty. Well, this act of theft and treachery is what sparks the great war, where all the kings of Greece gather their armies and sail across the Aegean Sea to lay siege to the heavily fortified city of Troy. And so for a grueling ten years of bloodshed and misery, these two great leagues of men fight in battle. And it's not resolved until the clever Odysseus conjures up a plan by which the men, the soldiers of Greece, will infiltrate the city of Troy, hiding in a carefully constructed wooden horse. And as the Trojans bring it into their city, unawares that men will sneak out in the middle of the night, open the gates, and bring back in, out of hiding, the whole armies of Greece who will slay the men of Troy and burn it to the ground. This one of the greatest stories of all time, a story of great death and destruction, is a battle between two leagues of men over a woman. It echoes the greatest story of all time, found in Scripture. A great battle, a cosmic war for the heart of a woman, the people of God. In the Trojan War story, Helen was a woman who betrayed her husband, and yet was a woman worth fighting for. In the book of Hosea, the Lord commands the prophet to redeem his estranged wife to illustrate the great lengths he will go to win the heart of his bride, Israel. In the Greek story, the people are to be pitied because they're but mere pawns manipulated by the capricious actions of self-centered gods and goddesses. In contrast, the Bible indicts humankind. It's our own sin and idolatry that brings misery to us in defiance of our covenant vows to our maker and redeemer. Even still, the gracious God, the Lord Yahweh, pities his people and calls all of us to renounce the folly of our idolatry and to return to the one who alone loves us, even unto death. We find in the first half of chapter 2 a great litany of charges and threats and resolutions of a lover scorned. Hosea's suffering parallels the heartbrokenness of God who vent the pain of rejection. Verse 2 is a rebuke whereby the prophet calls upon the children of this woman to contend with her, to strive with her, just as the Lord is exhorting 
the people of Israel to rise up against Israel as a nation who has turned away from him. These husbands, God and man, repudiate their marital bonds by declaring, she is not my wife. These husbands call upon the children's witnesses to call upon their mother to put away her adulteries. It's a hard task for a child, even if an adult, to confront a parent in transgression. This is a hard message for us today, but an appropriate one. As members of the visible body and bride of Christ, to challenge and call all the people of God to repentance, to turn away from false gospels, to rebuke being cozy with our cultural idols of our day. As we consider this text, and we'll go on in weeks to come in the book of Hosea, I think one of the clear messages this book gives to us, a clear application, is for us to understand that spiritual adultery pains the heart of God. God is not impassive or indifferent about our sin and idolatry. We must not follow the way of the culture, merely cavalierly dismissing our sin in favor of self-esteem, the power of positive thinking, and other modern psychologies. All of these fail to appropriate both the bad news of our depravity as well as the good news of our redemption in Christ. We must hold fast to the message of the gospel. As the late pastor Jack Miller used to say, cheer up. You're worse than you think. Cheer up. God loves you and accepts you more than you would all ever possibly dare to imagine. One verses 3 and 4, the jealous husband threatens to humiliate his wife. He will expose her shame. He will slay her with thirst. He will deny her basic provision. He threatens most severely not to love her children, those that were apparently born in adultery. I take this moment to revisit the interpretation of, of what the nature of the relationship is between Hosea and Gomer. Dr. Light presented it last week helping us to understand that Hosea either was called to marry a prostitute who may or may not already have had children, or was called upon by God to marry a woman whom would be unfaithful to him. In either case, it is clear that this woman, Gomer, had out-of-wedlock children after the marriage. And as indicated here in verse 4. And I I tend to lean towards the view back on chapter 1 that the second and third children born in chapter 1 were probably not Hosea's. But it's an unsettled difficulty that none of us are going to resolve now. But what is clear and almost completely unanimous is that, that Gomer was unfaithful to Hosea, the prophet. She leaves him for others. And by circumstance, she falls upon hardship and is threatened with slavery. And it's there that God commands Hosea to go redeem and take her back for a wife in chapter 3. Well, back in our text in chapter 2, 
verse 5, we find a direct accusation that just like Gomer, Israel has sought as a nation other lovers, false gods who promise her provision. She prostitutes herself. She gives of herself to receive their favors. You know, considering that Hosea, as a prophet, had a public ministry, I'm reminded of a sad story I heard of, of a pastor whose wife led a double life. This woman, who was faithful to serve the church on Sundays, would periodically go to the bars to pursue illicit anonymous relations with other men. There's a modern picture of the spiritual adultery the Bible indicts upon the people of God in our own day. So what does a husband do about that? What does the Lord do about it? Well, notice the Lord's resolve in verse 6. Here is the first of three therefores in chapter 2. He resolves to block her path, to prevent her from bringing more harm upon herself. I remember my parents telling me years ago about an occasion where my older sister, who at the age of 16, was determined to leave the house in her car, and my parents were determined to stand in her way. And so they stood side by side in the driveway, preventing her from getting out the driveway without running them over. That was a bold and courageous move by parents. But parents sometimes have to stand in the way to block the destructive paths of their children. Sometimes spouses have to come to the aid of their beloved to protect them from self-harm as well. And so we see here God protecting his people from themselves. The NIV uses the word block. The King James says hedge. God will hedge them in with thorn bushes. Interestingly, Satan will accuses Job of only being faithful to God because God had put a hedge around him, blessing him with wealth. And so it's when God removes the hedge from Job. He suffers great affliction, but goes on to prove that his loyalty to God was not superficial. May we pray that God not remove his hedge from us, from our households, from our children. May we pray for grace to persevere when that hedge is lowered for a season of trial. Well, back in our text in verse 7, we see the first hint of compassion on the part of the husband. As he reflects on the fact that his wife will pursue but not find her lovers, he knows that other gods do not love Israel. They don't care about her. They only abuse her. Many of us know of young women who have been stuck in relationships with abusive boyfriends or husbands. Despite all efforts to convince them and reason with them, it seems impossible to counsel them to move away. So the Lord comes pleading to a wife stuck in abusive relationships. He sets up boundaries, hoping that she might return to her senses. Remember that the prodigal, who thought little of his father when he had plenty, came to his senses when poverty 
came upon him like a bandit. This bride, too, will return when she realizes that she had it better with her first husband. Now, notice the implication in verse 8, where it says that the Lord, it was the Lord that provided Israel with all of her grain, wine, oil, and gold. Not Baal, the do-nothing God. And many commentators and past preachers suggest that Hosea may even have provided provided for Hosea, provided for Gomer while she was living with another man who was either unable or unwilling to provide for her and yet remained ignorant to the provision that came from her legitimate husband. In the film Fireproof, we find a, a marriage falling apart and saved only when the husband learns to love his wife biblically. In one stirring scene, the wife thinks that an anonymous gift paying for a very expensive piece of medical equipment to help her aging and ailing mother thinks it comes from this other man with whom she's begun a relationship with. She is cut to the heart, broken and repentant when she learns that it was her husband who gave up his dream to buy a boat to pay for the needs of his mother-in-law, even while his wife was treating him like dirt. This was a man who learned how to return evil with good. Likewise, likewise, Hosea reminds us that God provides for us even when we are running away from him. Baal is not generous. False lovers are mere users and abusers. Only God is our true husband, the lover of our souls. And God's love is a pursuing love and a disciplining love. The husband, reflecting upon the good that he has done to his unfaithful wife, turns in verses 9 to 13, ramping up the emotional intensity of his threats out of love for her. He will take away her grain, her clothing by which she committed idolatry. He will expose her publicly, stop her partying and her celebration. He will ruin her vines and fig trees and punish her spiritual adulteries. And then in the blink of an eye, after the final venting of wrath and threats, we see a dramatic change of tone in the voice of God in verse 14. With a great move of heart, grace, And mercy, triumph, trump wrath and judgment. The Lord resolves to win back the heart of his bride. And so in verse 14 and onward, you see, we find this endearing, even erotic language by which the Lord pledges to woo Israel back to himself. He desires to take her back to the wilderness, echoing the time at Sinai when they first made their covenant Union vows to one another. He will purge her from idolatry. Remove the name of Baal from their lips. And as we know from Scripture, idolatry is only purged by trials and the word of God. This echoes forward into Ephesians 5 and the great marriage passage that Paul writes where Christ cleanses us with the washing, with the water of the word, to present us to himself as a radiant church without stain, wrinkle, 
or any other blemish, but holy and blameless in his sight. And so in in anticipation of this great marriage, we have a pledge, a promise right here in verses 19 and 20. I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you in righteousness and justice and love and compassion. This is the bride price. This is the price a man would pay to purchase, to pay the woman's father, to bring her to himself under his household. And of course, we know that God did pay. He paid dearly the excruciating cost of the blood of his own son. Friends, it's with that bloodshed that we are betrothed to Christ. And we now await that great wedding day when he will return to claim us. It's with this background in mind that we must understand this vision of renewal and understand how it is that God can require Hosea to do this awful thing, this amazing thing to go to the market, to ransom his wife. You know, we have a God who sometimes asks hard things. God asked Abraham to sacrifice his only son whom he loved. God required Moses to go before Pharaoh, whom he feared. Joseph had to endure the treachery of his brothers. The Lord permitted Satan to bring havoc and misery to Job's life. Unlike the gods of Greece, our God is not capricious or vindictive. He does not delight in our suffering, but he does call his people to endure hardships, to learn something of his grace, and to be able to testify to his goodness as they endure through great trials. We remember that God does not ask anybody to do anything that he was not willing to do himself. It was God who entered into a marriage relationship where he knew the bride would run from him, would betray him, would make him a laughingstock to the nations. And it's this great long-suffering God who endures and forgives, who woos and reconciles his bride back to himself. And it was this God who asked of his own son to suffer the miseries of this life and to pay the penalty do to us for our transgressions, suffering crucifixion on a Roman cross in our place. It's with these things in mind that we can hope to understand the Lord's words to Hosea in chapter 3, verse 1. Go, show your love to your wife again. Though she is loved by another and is an adulteress, love her as the Lord loves the Israelites though they turn to other gods. It's likely that Gomer was in great debt and so was sold on the auction block in the capital city of Samaria. God tells Homer to go buy her. Hosea likely had to outbid others who are bidding on her body as slaves were usually sold without any clothes on. People would have likely called Hosea a fool, for wasting money on a worthless woman. He pays 15 shekels of silver 
and some barley grain to it. Not a high price, but the emotional price is unmeasurable. A modern-day equivalent might be a pastor in his session going to bail out the pastor's wife from jail for prostitution or public intoxication or some other scandalous deed. This was not a private affair between Jose and his wife. The whole community would know. She would be a deep embarrassment to him. She likely would feel tremendous shame and self-loathing. And so Hosea speaks words of comfort to her. You are mine. You are coming home with me, and you are to go with no other. I believe Jesus echoes this same message when he says to the woman caught in adultery in John chapter 8, does no one condemn you? Neither do I. But go now and sin no more. You see, grace sets us free from the threat of judgment, from bondage in our sin, free to live as God called us to live, holy and happy and joyfully reconciled to our Creator and Redeemer. You know, Hosea's message would have been greatly offensive to his original audience. People would have looked upon him and Gomer with disdain. They would have taken strong objection to this claim that that somehow Gomer's behavior reflected the behavior of Israel before God. Likewise, people object today to the message of sin. People also object to the message of grace. How can it be that God should pay my debt? How should it be that someone else should stand in my steed? But friends, the gospel message is that we can't pay it back. We are mere recipients of forgiveness and called to go and sin no more in joyful freedom. Friends, what Hosea did for Gomer, Yahweh did for Israel. And Christ did for all God's people throughout all the ages. We are Gomer. We are sold on the auction block of sin. And Jesus bid for us with the price of his own precious blood. He clothed our filth and nakedness with his robes of righteousness. Redemption came at a price. It was not free. It was breathtakingly expensive and cost far more than Hosea's cost financially or emotionally. I saw a story on the internet recently where a man broke off his engagement to this woman when he learned that she had amassed hundreds of thousands of dollars in debt. Now perhaps he was wise to do that. But are you not glad our Redeemer did not do that with us? Christ paid all of our debts, past, present, and future. And he has no regrets. He will not renege on his promise. He does not resent us. 
For Scripture says that for the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame for you and I. And our Redeemer looks forward to that great wedding day where he will set up house with us in a new heavens and a new earth. Well, as the Trojan War myth goes, after the Greeks sack the city of Troy, Menelaus finds his estranged wife Helen falling at his feet, begging for mercy. It was by a promise that he made to Odysseus that kept him from slaying her on the spot. But there, as Menelaus gazed upon the beauty of Helen, after ten years apart, remembering happier times together, his heart was moved to pity. Menelaus drops his sword, embraces his wife with mercy and forgiveness. Friends, you and I have offended and betrayed the high king. He has every right to judge us, to condemn us. And yet he, when he approaches, he drops the sword. He embraces us with mercy and forgiveness. He puts away any thought of punishment, not because of anything beautiful in us, but because in us he sees the beauty and the righteousness of Jesus Christ with whom we are betrothed. Friends, we are no longer condemned if we are in Christ. It is ours the privilege to enjoy his forgiveness and the cleansing of sin if you would trust in Christ alone for your eternal salvation. Christian, know that you are engaged to a gracious kinsman redeemer And when the Lord returns, he will consummate at that great marriage supper of the Lamb, and we will dwell with him in glory, without shame, with sin gone forevermore. That will be a holy and happy day and a glorious marriage for all eternity. Father, we praise you. We worship and adore you. We thank you for Jesus, our Savior our betrothed, the one who has purchased us, has redeemed us back from the slave market. Thank you that we are free, that we are clean in your sight, that we are holy and righteous through the blood of Christ. Help us to live, to live free, to live joyfully as your betrothed, as an engaged people who await the day of our Lord and Savior to come and take us. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.